Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is my colleague here at George Mason University, Robin Hansen. Robin blogs at overcomingbias.com. He has a very wide range of interests, and today we're going to look at Robin's unusual perspective on health and medicine. We'll also touch on Robin's pioneering work on prediction markets. He'll be checking in over the next week at the comments section for this podcast, so feel free to ask him questions there and challenge what he says in today's podcast. Robin, a lot of people think that healthcare is different from other things that we care about. And one standard argument is because you need health care and you'll pay anything to get it uh, to make sure your health is, is okay, that we have to use government to intervene in healthcare markets because in that kind of situation, markets just can't do the job because people are going to act uh, irrationally and spend everything that they possibly could to keep their health preserved. Does that uh, argument carry any water for you? As you expect, Russ, No. <laughs> No? <laughs> so, uh, so Set I'm, that straw man on fire. Go ahead. Well, obviously, there's lots of things we do in life that have different scales. We buy houses. We take jobs. We do you know, big things. We switch careers. We choose to try to be a rock musician. And obviously, bigger choices have bigger consequences, and we should think more about them. But by itself, that doesn't mean they should be more regulated or more subsidized or any of the other sorts of things we feel inclined to do about medical care. Uh, the biggest argument to say that medical care is different is just the fact you mentioned that people feel so confident that it is different, that they feel such a strong impulse to treat it differently, act differently about it, uh, re- regulate it differently. Uh, honestly, that's one of our biggest clues that something really is different. But it's people sort of grasp at what is it that's different, and the few the easy things they grasp at don't really work, as you mentioned. But one of them being the idea that people spend whatever it takes for health care. I think. We have this. Well, obviously, they don't. Because? Well, just historically, they haven't. I mean, through most of history, medical spending was a, you know, 1% or 2% of the economy at most. Uh, recently, it's up to 16%, but still, that's not everything. No, I think the claim would be that uh, anytime you can spend the money you do, the only reason we didn't spend so, as much uh, in the past as we do in the present is because there's always, there, wasn't, there weren't any doctors no, that were yet. I mean, no. after all, once you've spent everything There are always can, plenty of doctors. They always had lots of things they could do for you. They, oh, they've been making up stuff forever, right? They well, could jingle this. They could say these words. They what, could give but, you these stuff. That you didn't know but, the difference, so they, they had lots of stuff they could make up. After you bought the leeches, I mean, you've spent all you can. You got the best leeches. <laughs> Imported <laughs> well, leeches, not just go. the local leeches. There you go. Um, Seriously, in the more stylized version of this, it's, um, well, uh, when you have an accident or a healthcare condition, right, that's when you spend the money. And I think even in those situations, we see, in, in fact, people don't spend everything. They don't take right. every test. They don't get every treatment. Uh, some things just aren't worth it or are considered to be too risky. Well, we do see a difference in behavior when, when you're sitting in front of, you know, in the emergency room and they say to do this and you have to take the money out of your pocket or write a check, people act differently there. That is, they don't write a check for everything. They don't spend everything. Uh, and then when they're thinking ahead of time, should I take this job? Should I take this health uh, insurance package? At that point, they are willing to spend a lot. So there's somewhat of a disconnect. 
people actually do seem to value health insurance enormously in terms of the benefit on a job. They're willing to forego enormous amounts of salary to get generous health care health insurance packages, but at the moment of choice, they aren't actually willing to spend quite as much. So it's more the opposite of the usual intuition. <laughs> and Well, then they'd spend large amounts, but they wouldn't spend an infinite amount. It's just important to mention. They don't spend as much as it would be the key point. That is, if people have to make the medical choice at the moment of choice, when sort of the treatments are available at that moment, they don't spend as much. And that's one of the interesting things. So uh, that is the uh, main, one of the main lessons of the RAND health insurance experiment that I was telling you about. Yeah, well, I want to come back to the RAND experiment in a second. I, I just first want to make the, the key point as well that I think people often forget that even in a situation of crisis, even in a, situ- a situation where you have a severe health risk or severe health condition, uh, the fact that you'd be willing to pay a lot for it uh, does not mean that, therefore, markets don't work because sure. uh, it's true of food. So, for right. example, people really like food. Food's really important, and people would would pay a lot for it, but they don't have to. Right. And the reason is is that there's competition among food suppliers, brings the price down, and that competition protects us from the fact that we would pay a lot for food if if right. if, if we had to, but we don't have to. And the same could be true of healthcare if we allowed some more competitive stuff in there. Um, the, but, the other big reason people say healthcare is different often is because it's very hard to evaluate the quality. Of medicine, well, I like that. Ar- that's a separate <laughs> argument. Uh, that that one is the idea that which I find bizarre. That because I don't know how my body works as well as some people might, that is doctors, yeah. I can't evaluate whether a doctor is a good doctor or whether a treatment is a good treatment or not. Now, in fact, you know, you get on the internet, you can often learn very much about something that you're worried about or have a condition you have, and be up to speed very quickly, but. What's the relevance of that? That somehow, because you don't know as much about healthcare as an expert, that therefore you can't be trusted to consume it. Well, I think, first of all, people vastly overestimate how much they know about everything else they buy. I mean, <laughs> that's we're true. really pretty ignorant about most things we buy. We, we, we make do. Yeah, it's true. The other point is, of course, to say, well, if you're ignorant about this, you'll have to delegate to some institution, a consumer reports, an evaluation committee, or something to help you out. Uh, that there's the question of whether a government agency does a better job of that than some other agency, and uh, in order to justify some sort of regulation there, you'd have to make that argument, which is sure. a bit hard to do. Right. Let's go to the Rand Health experiment that you mentioned, which is uh, – um, I think you've written about it saying it's it, it's the most important experiment people don't know enough about or something I'd like that. I'd say it's that. the most important experiment, period, and the fact that every week there's a big section in the Washington Post all about health studies, and all the people who read that health section from cover to cover every week have never heard of the Rand Health Insurance Experiment as a crime. Uh, do you think that's true? <laughs> I, do you read the, the health <laughs> section? You'd be one exception to that. Uh, maybe you don't read it cover to cover. Uh, but uh, tell us about the experiment. So in the late 1970s, uh, the U.S. government, uh, because people wanted to show how important health care was to people, that they needed nationalized health care in order to, for people weren't dying all the time, they uh, created a randomized experiment. Now, before this experiment, there had been decades of research where people had looked at correlations between medicine and health, say across states or across counties or across countries. Uh, and when they did those Correlation studies, turns out you see lots of things that correlate with health, you know, exercise, sleep, uh, wealth, diet, air pollution, but you don't see a correlation with medicine. Medicine. Oops. <laughs> Awkward. So, so that's a puzzle. And you're talking about modern times, not, right, not just the leech period. Right. I'm talking modern yeah. times, both in developed countries and in underdeveloped countries. 
uh, all across the map, you basically the usual result is you don't see a correlation. You see correlations with other stuff, but not with medicine. Or, or you might see the correlation in a crude form, but once you take out the effects of right, income, once you put in enough control variables, genders, uh, sex, not, et cetera, yeah. right? Control variables, you don't see an effect anymore, and that of course was puzzling. Since these are correlation studies, it can always be criticized as, well, you didn't control for enough things. This is correlation, not causation. Right. Once you see enough disentangled factors, you'll be able to see the important benefit of medicine. And, of course, everybody's constant. We live a lot longer now than we did a century ago because of the grand men in white coats. Something <laughs> must be. Right. So, so, of course, it's medicine. You just haven't looked at it right. So the RAND experiment was an attempt to do it right. Okay, we're not just going to look at correlations. We're going to do the randomized experiment, just like you do with a standard clinical trial, except testing one little drug for one condition. We're testing medicine overall for all conditions overall. So the idea is we, take, we took 5,000 to 7,000 people uh, in six U.S. cities, and we randomly assigned some of them to get free medicine. Here it is. Take all you want. And other people got basically full-price medicine. You want it. Here's the price list, and you'll have to pay. And so ha- half the group was was had the equivalent of, well, let's just call it blank check, <laughs> blank check, and the other half had to pay out of pocket. Right, they got a small copayment, so they would fill out the forms to report how much they were paying. But other than that, they were basically paying a lot. There's uh, a huge difference between in right, price. Right, absolutely. And as you'd expect, the people and, who had to pay didn't take as much. You mean demand curve sloped downward yeah, exactly. even for healthcare? Shocker. Yeah. Okay. Good. This well, that's comforting. News. Uh, evidently, it's true for all things except gasoline. Uh, it, is people, not, it is relatively inelastic, so it's uh, not a very yeah, elastic demand yeah, curve, I think but it's, it's there. It's real. Um, I, I'm joking about the gasoline. Uh, gasoline demand curves also slope downward, but uh, when you say inelastic or elastic, uh, what you're saying then is that the healthcare demand curve is inelastic, meaning it's relatively unresponsive so, so to price. It's dropping responsive, from full but price not, to zero price gave you roughly a 40% increase in quantity. So. That's relatively inelastic, but still, it's, it's a, a substantial big increase, chunk. Okay, yeah. so that was comforting and, and obvious. Everybody pretty much expected that. And then the interesting thing was, okay, the people who got more medicine were they any healthier? Now, of you'd course, they got thirty percent. They spent thirty percent plus more. Yeah, forty around thirty to forty percent more quantity. And oh, this was over a three to five year period. And you'd think, say, if you read the medical journals or all these other sort of usual newspaper articles, you'd think that uh, this would make a difference. And, you know, some people might say, well, okay, this extra thing was just when they got the sniffles and they had a wart. Something trivial, but, hey, it was free, so they just went in for the trivial stuff. They twisted their ankle. So if you were, say, you twist your ankle and you're paying full price, you might just kind of walk it off and hope it gets rapid, hope it gets better. But if it's free, you may as well get it x-rayed and wrapped professionally. But But it turns out when we looked at the extra care people got because of the free medicine and compared it to the common care both groups get. And you had sort of doctor evaluations after the fact of the medical appropriateness. It was just the same. You had doctor evaluations. Of, what does that mean, doctor evaluations? So, of so the they medical. looked at the case and they said, okay, this is the presenting symptoms. This is what you did to them. Yeah, we think that was the right thing to have done. And this was an important thing to have done or not. So they evaluated appropriateness. They, they failed appropriateness like a quarter of the time. So. Woo! <laughs> Uh, also, they measured severity of diagnosis from really severe down to we don't see anything wrong with you. Right. And the, those were just the same percentages in the two categories of medicine. Okay, so the people who had the blank check versus the people who paid full price. The blank check got- stuff was just as serious a diagnosis. All this, the extra stuff they came in with wasn't, tri- wasn't considered trivial stuff. It was just as serious. And it wasn't just, say, one group got a bad and inaccurate diagnosis for some of the time and was right. told, oh, you're fine, but in fact they were horrible. They tried to evaluate whether they got good care in both cases. And right. 
the level so look, of care was roughly the same in both. And it was just as often to the hospital, not just outpatient. So, Right. So we had serious stuff, not serious stuff. We had a whole so mix the same, of stuff. It was a usual mix, the same mix. So as far as doctors looking at it, the extra care that the people with the free medicine got looks the same. Same appropriateness, same severity of diagnosis, same level of hospitalization treatment. It's all the same kind of stuff. And so for the group that got 30 to 40% more health care, how was their health? Well, the bottom line is it wasn't any different. Now, one qualifier is when they gave people free medicine, they gave them a lot of stuff. They gave them free doctors and free dentists and free eyeglasses. It turns out people with free eyeglasses can see better. That was one of the strong results of the experiment. That's a shocking. They called that medicine, and therefore there was an important benefit of medicine, you see. Yeah. If you set that one aside. Yeah, which I think we might, yeah. All the rest of it, basically, no effect. Now, how would you, how did they measure effect when you say so, so there's right if I mean, you three have, to five years is not such a long not, time I mean, not, not enough of them died to do mortality so okay. I, so most health studies all these other studies i talked to you about before the correlation studies they usually look at whether you die or not there wasn't enough here to do so what they did is they had 25 different measures like blood pressure and you know all sorts of particular physical measurements that they took and then they had some overall health measures basically how are you feeling are you you know happy are you able to do the things you want to do you know are you crazy <laughs> And on, that was their main intention was to look at those overall measures. And um, on the overall measures, no effect. Also, if you break down the overall measures by the rich versus poor, no effect. And if you break it down by people who were initially sick versus initially healthy, no effect. And if you break those into those four groups, no effect. What was the age group of the people who were? So uh, you couldn't take away people's Medicare then. So you couldn't do the old people because they had free medicine anyway, as we all know. Uh, and uh, they treated children separately. So it was basically 14-year-olds to 61-year-olds. Uh, Do you believe the results? So let, let, me, let me summarize the results, uh, make sure I get it right. Basically what they did is they took two groups of people. One people got free medical care. The other group had to pay full price. They were a, a wide range of, of healthy and unhealthy to start with. A wide range of stuff happened to them over the three to five years of the experiment. Right. And as you might expect, the people with the free health care bought a lot more, got a lot more visits, got a lot more tests, did more stuff, and yet no tangible, objective measure of health showed that that had any impact, Not which, was consistent, which was consistent with these um, cross-sectional over time studies at the national level that showed that nations that spent more on health care also didn't get healthier. Or states or counties. Or- yeah. So I guess there's two things we could – two positions we could take on these findings. One is, well, they still didn't do it right. It was only three to five years. You needed more old people. You need more death. You need more And that was 30 years ago. Everything's changed since then. How can we trust 30-year-old experiments? So that would be one, right? Uh, And it's only one experiment, uh, even though it was perhaps very well done. And and it did have thousands of people, but you could argue they needed millions. We we could have a lot of caveats, as we always do when we look at empirical empirical work. The alternative view is – Take it seriously. A, a little more chilling, uh, which is and, – and I think thought-provoking, which is what we will turn to now, which is, well, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true that medical expenditure is – doesn't have the bang for the buck that we might uh, hope or think it would and start thinking about why that would be. And before we do that, I want to uh, just have a little taxonomy here. A lot of people – say America has a health insurance problem, I always think to myself when I hear that, 
well, we really care about health care, not health insurance. I really don't go through life worried that I don't have a particular kind of card in my wallet. I worry about whether I can get the health care that I want in the situation where I want it. Uh, what this is suggesting is it's not only not health insurance that matters. It's not only health care that matters. It's just health. And unfortunately, neither health care nor health insurance are as important in producing health uh, as we might have thought. So what would be the some of the explanations for why that could possibly be, given that that is not intuitive? Well, there's explanations at different levels. So one one level would be, how could all these studies be wrong? How could all the other studies we see in medical journals, how could all these doctors, how could all these which, people... Which studies? Well, medical journals every month come out with piles and piles of studies, most of which say that the particular treatments they're studying are a good idea. A, a particular pharmaceutical, a particular device. Right. Or, yeah. Okay, so you could say, how could that many of that stuff be wrong? That would be one question we could ask. Another question we could ask is, well, why are people buying all this stuff if it isn't very useful? Because people have been buying medicine not just in the last few years. This has been going on for centuries or thousands of years across all cultures. And medical historians usually actually tell you that if you, you know, go back a century or more, it was probably a bad idea to go to the doctor then. They didn't wash their hands. They spread disease. You know, you, so, but why were people going then? Uh, yeah, that raises it. Yeah, that's a good point, right? People had a lot of evidence then. Well, I guess it was still as ambiguous perhaps as it is now. We look back on it now and say, boy, going to the doctor in, in 1860 uh, where his main medical device was a saw or a, was, leech. Or a leech is really not uh, a good thing. And I think most people – I think a lot of people did realize that and probably didn't go very often, uh, certainly didn't go with – There were a the, lot of skeptics certainly. Yes. Tolstoy's one. Tolstoy was one. Yeah. yeah. He, he has some very nice uh, descriptions in his uh, War and Peace classic novel. Uh-huh. I've forgotten them. Uh, that's what happens when you get old and read things when you're young. So Tolstoy was uh, – he, in War and Peace, evidently had some really ugly scenes of, of uh, medicine of the day. Well, actually, he has a description of a patient who's lovelorn and unhappy, and she lies around, and she's un- sick. Uh, she gets sick that way, and basically her family spends tons of money to have doctors do throw lots of stuff at her. And she says, oh, I don't care about this. And, and basically, you know, she he describes it as – they was trying to show that they cared about her, and she liked all the attention. And uh-huh. you know, everybody they needed something to do while she was sick, so they they, they liked having to, little pills to give and a regimen and instructions and making sure that they were always staying up and showing how much they cared about her. But nothing medical or biological or physi- physiological was actually going on. Well, they, they gave her a bunch of bad chemicals, but they <laughs> d- didn't kill her. So <laughs> lucky. Um, so, so I interrupted you. We, we're we're talking about the different reasons that this this paradoxical finding that medical care. Uh, might not have any impact on on health. Healthcare might not affect your health. So you said. Uh, so so one view is that. Um, help me out here. So first, I said we could be puzzled by how this fits with all. How could medicine be getting this wrong, or how could doctors be this wrong because they keep telling you to come in for another visit? And we could, we could and we could say, well, how could people be this wrong? They keep uh, buying it. Uh, but what's your take? Well, my take is medicine is strange. And this isn't the only strangeness, and I think the right way to do armchair economics, since I'm sitting here in an armchair, is to uh, not just look at one strange thing, but try to collect a whole bunch of strange things, lay them out on the table, and stare at them for a while, and see if you can find some simple explanation that explains a bunch of them at once. Coming up with an ad hoc explanation for one strange thing you see is just a little too easy and a little too undisciplined. And I'm saying you have to use formulas or or, um, derivatives here or something. I mean, try to impose a little discipline by 
looking at a bunch of things at so, once. So let's and there let's, are other things. Yeah, let's start cataloging the cataloging the strange things. So strange thing number one is that maybe healthcare doesn't affect your health, but if that's true, which is strange, right. the next strange thing would be then why do people keep going to the doctor? Right. So right. here's another related strange thing. When you offer people information about the quality of medicine, like you, you talked about going on the internet looking stuff up, they're remarkably uninterested <laughs> in this and are remarkably uninterested in even paying for it or bothering to look at it. So there was a, a famous uh, experiment done in the late 1980s in Pennsylvania where there were uh, five, I think four or five local hospitals, and they published the mortality rates of people at different hospitals for different treatments and for different surgeons. And then they did a survey of people about to undergo heart surgery. Who, Pretty important thing. Right. So if you do a simple count, so one of the hospitals has a 1% mortality rate for a certain treatment. Another hospital has a 5% mortality rate. Okay. A difference of 4% mortality should be worth a lot to you. Many tens of thousands of dollars. According should, to other behaviors that people right, right, that you would think, involved with risk people, uh, behave that way. Right. People don't want to die, you'd think. <clears throat> so they should, you should think, I, I want to find out which hospital is more deadly and go to the one that's less deadly. So they surveyed people who were about to undergo surgery, and they said, uh, did you look at this information? Uh, uh, do you think it would have influenced your choice? Uh, what was the rating for your hospital anyway? Uh, if you didn't have the information, how much would you be willing to pay for it? It turns out, uh, would you be willing to pay $50? Only 8% of the people said that. Uh, if you asked them, did you see the information? A, lot, a fair number of people said. If you asked them for the actual number, they couldn't remember what it was. It basically looked like out of 500 people surveyed, maybe five people that actually influenced their decision. And this is just not something they wanted to see. I'm not sure I find that very credible as a piece of evidence for proving that people are – or evidence that people are in different information. Um, $50 for something that's worth tens of well, thousands? I'm not sure it's, well, I think the answer would be – I mean, you, maybe you have some doubts about it, but $50? Well, I'm going to go the other way here. Uh, I'm going to argue that people are sophisticated – and they understood that a 5% mortality rate versus a 1% mortality rate could be due to lots of factors other than the quality of the hospital. Right. So, and, and for example – This was supposedly risk-adjusted mortality rate. Uh, but supposedly. Again, I think that would be hard to do. I mean, for example, if somebody told hard, me – Hard, but not impossible. If somebody told if, – if my uh, – let's say I have a good friend who is a doctor. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I go to her and I ask her for the best specialist in the area – uh, in area uh, some, where I have a problem, I need surgery, say, and she recommends so and so. Turns out so and so doesn't rank very high in these rankings, okay. uh, or at the hospital that so and so works at isn't ranked very high. I go along probably with my friend's recommendation. What does your friend know? Who's your friend? Well, she's a doctor. So well, all these people, she, all these hospitals are doctors. <laughs> <laughs> well, the people who did the study are doctors. Yeah, I know, but but. I'm giving you an insight into my flawed thinking, Robin. I'm not. I, I'm not maybe going to try to understand why those people turned it down. <laughs> I, I see the point. Well, so, you're, but, so I'm. I'm suggesting pause on trying to explain this stuff. First, collect a bunch okay. of puzzles, and then okay. see if you can find a common explanation. Not just try to throw off ad hoc explanations for each one one at a time. All right, keep going. So I'll let you keep going. <laughs> Go ahead. So, there, so, so we've added a, a puzzle which appears to be that people are, even though they're clearly concerned about their health, they don't seem to put much value on. Information about the quality of the healthcare that they're getting. Right, we've got a lot of puzzling patterns about people like to get medicine from their government or from their company. They like community medicine. It just makes them feel good. Uh, we're not entirely sure why, but uh, we certainly hear a lot of you know sentiments like that expressed. It's true. 
Uh, we hear that. People f- like to get medicine from their family members. They like the family members to be involved. Uh, married people get have more medicine than unmarried people, uh, especially people with children get more medicine than people without children, even though children are pretty dang healthy. Um, women get more medicine than non. Um, people like to regulate health, certain kind of health-related behaviors. So uh, mo- you know, a lot of regulation, if you think about it, is health-related regulation. People don't mind you taking a chance with an apple that tastes crappy, but if the apple might have a health risk, however tiny, well, then they want that regulated. Now, some of that is, I assume, what we call in economics an income effect. As we get wealthier, uh, we tend to want less risk. Risk is one of the things we want to consume less of. Sure, but there's lots of kinds of risk. Eating a crappy apple is a risk. Mm. Yeah, but it's not dangerous. I think... think, But as uh, you said, the stakes should scale with the probability. So, yes... A small, you know, a, a event that hurts you a lot should be important to the extent there's a substantial probability. But if the probability gets really small, then you should. Say, yeah, but I'm yeah. wondering if we regulate. I suspect we regulate um, those higher risks more intensely than the lower risk. Well, and I'd also, I'd also think that some of our preferences and the way we talk about regulation comes from living in a world where we really haven't. Most of us haven't seen. An alternative, right? It's an interesting thing. There's a lot of other big things that affect us. We aren't very interested in regulating. So people say choose to get married or choose to have children or choose to move cities or jobs. Those are big, important decisions. They have a lot of consequences. They're not that easy to undo, but we're not that interested in regulating them. Yeah, there there could be public choice reasons for some of these things, obviously. Sure, but again, I'm going to encourage you to... You know, don't try to jump in and explain each one one at a time. Okay. Sort of so put are, them all together. Are you going to put them all together? Uh, well, I've been trying to put them all together. Okay. I don't have a lot of great confidence, but I'll, this is the right sort of thing we ought to be doing as economists, as social scientists in a wide range of areas. So I'll just I like, say, first I this is the only area that's strange like this. It's one of the strangest, right. but there's lots of other strange well, I, areas. I, I wanna, before you give me your thoughts, I want to commend you. I think the, uh, I think the general attitude uh, is a very healthy one, that that – Rather than give an ad hoc explanation here and there, a different ad hoc explanation <laughs> for every little nook and cranny of the peculiarities of some uh, area, it'd be better to have a, an overarching uh, holistic one. So take a crack. All right. So I've got two cracks. One is almost flippant, but it gets you a fair bit of ways, is the idea that we're just terrified of thinking about death. No doubt about that. And. We all sort of know that, and you know, it's very hard to get somebody who disagrees with that claim, but we don't think very much about what that implies about our behavior. Uh, it suggests that we don't want to think about not trusting our doctor. <laughs> we don't want to think about him not knowing the best, because that means we have to sort of take this decision in our own hands again. And we could die, which right. is scary. So you're uh, saying there's a certain uh, – the word I would use is um, – Shamanism, right? We, we see doctors just, as sort of we, we want to magical. Push the, push the decision off somewhere else. Somebody else is in charge of that decision, not me now here. And I don't have to think about it. So, for example, when I buy my health insurance at the beginning of the year, I don't have to think I'm going to die. I just that this is the right prudent thing to do, and I put enough money in that so that somebody else will take care of the decision, and I don't have to think about it. But if I were afraid of dying, why wouldn't I spend more time? You're afraid of thinking charge? about dying. I'm afraid of thinking about. It. Okay, so that <laughs> you're more I, afraid of thinking about I, dying I, I, than you okay. are of dying. So right, I'm, it's not so much fear of dying. It's it's there's a taboo. I have a, an emotional, mental taboo in thinking about death, and when I focus on healthcare. Um, it forces me to confront that, and so I'd rather just not think about it. Right. What's the evidence that that's true other than it's a, it's a, it's a thought-provoking idea? Well, again, the, the game here is to look at the various puzzles we have and ask which fraction of the puzzles could this theory help explain. Okay. 
Uh, and it, it explains some of them not an impressive fraction, but you know, certain, it gives you, it gets you a certain way. So you say, well, I, I want to just write a blank check and have them do as much as they'll do, and then I don't don't have to I don't have to think I'm responsible for somebody's death or my death by not so, having done enough. And in this world, so the blank check is whatever is awesome. the usual stuff is. It's awesome because that way. Uh, I'll have it all. Just get, you know, what would you like, sir? Everything. And that way I don't have to worry That's that I right. might have missed something. Go to something. the all-you-can-eat restaurant. You don't have to worry about not having enough food. So if, right. you're, if you were terrified, if you were so terrified of not getting enough food that it just made you tremble and couldn't even think about that, you'd always want to go to all-you-can-eat restaurants. You, you would be terrified of going to restaurants where maybe you wouldn't get enough food. So in this, <laughs> in this argument, the, the inefficiencies that come from wasteful care – they're not wasteful because they, they they make they console you. They make you feel good that you went you gave best efforts. You went and did everything you could. And right. You didn't, well, they you might didn't, be wasteful. You didn't have any anxiety over it. If we could come up with a, another way to 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 uh, <laughs> console you without spending as much, then be of better. course it might be yeah. inefficient. And honestly, uh, people who who are supporters of socialized medicine have an argument when they say, "Well, you know what." When we have the government decide how much medicine to get, we uh, we give you the same reassurance, and then we actually spend less because the government acts actually a little more chintzy about these things than the. Uh, so this is the Canadian, the Canadian world where they where they ration right. all kinds of things. Uh, it's it's so, all free, but you just can't get it whenever you want, and in the quantity right, but you, you want. You don't have to feel guilty about not having gotten enough because everybody around you does the same thing, and you 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 did what you were supposed to do. But you do need that other part yeah. because when your loved ones die. Because they didn't get the surgery, you've got to argue this, that it didn't matter because some surgeries aren't yeah, worth it. Everybody around here knows that that's the you know we we all accept their authority and they've told us that wasn't worth it, so I'm not to blame. Yeah, I don't find that very comforting but, or, or or plausible. But get, <laughs> right, because you and I would be more willing to say, yeah. well, maybe I should have moved countries. Maybe yeah, I should have. Give me a, and many Canadians do, of course. Right. So the like, more that becomes an option, the less reassuring that's yeah. going to be to so them. Let's hear about. So there's uh, another explanation. What else? Do, and what else? Do, well, what else does it explain before you take your second? Does it explain anything else? This fear of death thing. Oh, it explains not wanting to think about quality as well as spending a lot. It explains uh, perhaps wanting to regulate in a way that sort of make, covers that. There are people who've made sure things are safe and we don't have to worry about overseeing somebody to do something unsafe, right? I don't have to worry about my kid buying an unsafe car because the government makes sure all the cars are safe and I don't have to think about my kid dying in a way that I would be to blame, say. Okay, uh, so otherwise, have to, you have to blame me for not making sure he got a safe car, and then that just makes me all worried. And, and while I find this, <laughs> this argument provocative, it's a little too close to people are stupid and, and so well, therefore what they do doesn't... Right, I agree. Uh, so let, give me your second answer. So my second, <laughs> an, second explanation. My second explanation is that uh, humans... Uh, evolved a bunch of ways to signal their loyalty to each other as well as their ability. Our ancestors' human tribes were much bigger than the tribes of other primates. The major part of the environment that was important to humans was other humans, and human brains became large, it seems, because they were social brains. They had to figure out each other, and one of the most important things they had to figure out was who's on my side. So human tribes are all about coalition formation, resplitting, rearranging. Anybody who's ever watched Survivor or something gets it. Uh, that's what our minds are made for, and a lot of our social practices are designed to reassure people or assure people that we are able and that we are loyal. So, hey, hang on. Okay, so hey, that's no. Hang on. We we got We got to. This is a startling idea for, for for me, and I think for for most, maybe some of our listeners, because it, it isn't the direction that I thought you were going to go. I thought well, you were going to give I'm me a different there. kind of answer, but but I want to make sure that that this is clear. So so. Uh, human evolution is such that it's really important to know 
who's on your side and who isn't. Is right. that is that the basic starting Absolutely. building block? And so, and what's the implication of that? So, so I've got of, this brain right. that so has this. A lot of our behaviors are have the function of reassuring people about our loyalty and our ability. A lot of behaviors that seem to have other purposes. Now, how did our ancestors reassure each other about their loyalty? Well, they did some kinds of things which are frequent small costs. They chatted when they walked by and they had a little shoot the breeze and, you know, how you doing? They might comb your hair. They might bring you a little gift once in a while. Those are sort of small ways that humans, you know, look, you know make friends. Right. Um, then there's some big things they do once in a while, like uh, go to war with you, uh, revenge the killing of your brother, help you build a hut, throw a feast. These are things that really touch people's heart because when you did one of these things, it was very expensive and it showed that not only were you on their side, you expected to be on their side for a while. If you were about to betray them, that was the time to do it, just before you had to do one of these big expensive things. And so the fact that you didn't means you're on their side. Right. So uh, if, if you went on a revenge killing with them or built them a hut or threw a feast for them, that was a strong reassurance of loyalty. That's the higher cost. Higher than, cost. Then, so that's hey, how you doing? That's right. That's especially potent signal of loyalty. But okay. an even more potent signal of loyalty is when somebody spends a lot of costs just at the moment you're really weak, and it would be just the opportune time to dump you. Right. And that's when you're sick or injured. Okay. And so taking care of somebody who was sick or injured was an especially potent signal of loyalty, especially potent signal of showing that you cared because this not only was expensive, it was just at the right time when you could most profitably dump them if you were going to. And therefore? And therefore, we evolved a tendency to treat healthcare, medical care, as a signal of loyalty, as a way to show that you care. And even though we think of it consciously as trying to get them better, we often somewhat less consciously are aware that we are trying to show how much we care about people through medicine. And even if it doesn't actually help them, we like to show that we care. It's an interesting idea. And so, first of all, that can explain why a lot of medicine isn't useful because when you're trying to show how much you care through some expenditure, how valuable it is, it is isn't the more important thing. It's how much it costs you. So when you're, if you're buying a box of chocolates for your Valentine, you don't ask how hungry is she, or what, yeah. <laughs> you know, how much does she need to eat. You ask how much do I need to spend so that a chump who doesn't care as much as I do wouldn't be willing to spend that much. That's well, how much yeah, you have to and ask. In, and in Valentines, you want a gaudy, extravagant box that looks expensive, right? Rather than a really high quality box that you got on sale. Uh, that just well, if they know it's on sale, it doesn't work. Right. At the point, it has to be expensive. So this is this is what's called uh, a signaling theory. Right. So you're combining two arguments here. One, you're saying we're hardwired to si- – well, here's the argument, I think. We're hardwired to signal love and affection via expenditure, via sacrifice, right? And not just all sacrifice. Some sacrifices were especially historically potent, and we have some hardwired features that look at those particular signals. Let me make an analogy to dating. Uh, in dating, people often try to signal the health and wealth and intelligence. Today, you could signal your health with a doctor's you know, st- statement. You could signal your wealth with a bank statement. You could signal your intelligence with an IQ score. But our ancestors didn't have those signals. Right. And so they had signals like showing your, your intelligence by how witty you are and how many topics you can talk about, showing your health by being sporty and doing, showing, you know, displaying your sport prowess in front of them or showing your wealth by having expensive clothing or expensive gifts. 
And those ancient signals of health, wealth, and intelligence still dominate the dating scene. We have these other more modern signals, which you think might be more efficient signals of those things, but they haven't displaced the ancient signals because in some level, those ancient signals are deeply buried in us. Right. So you, you pick up your date in a fancy car, right. which is a subtle – much subtler and less effective way than showing the bank statement because the car could be rented. Right. Uh, and, and the standard answer is, well, but showing your bank statement or your tax return, that, that's tacky. Whereas but your car is not, apparently. Right. But you're explaining <laughs> why it's tacky. Because uh, right. um, it's weird. Yeah. Well, actually. So, so going to the healthcare, we'd say we, we, it's not just that it's an expensive thing. It's an expensive thing that's the sort of thing our ancestors did and we have a deeply embedded sympathy for. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so it explains not only that we spend a lot, it also explains that the, we're not so interested in quality. So if you think about the box of chocolates, it, how, what sort of quality box of chocolates do I need to give you? Well, say there's a brand that I really like that other people don't like. If I give you that brand, I'm not going to get much credit yeah, for having to be a yeah. high quality. Say there's a brand of cro- chocolates that everybody likes, but you don't really like, but I don't know that you don't really like it. You're still going to give me credit for the box of chocolates because you're going to say, how could he have known? It's all about the common signal and not about the private signal. So if you look at these studies, you'll see people are surprisingly uninterested in private signals about the quality of medicine, but they're very responsive to public signals about I mean, the quality for example. of signals. So, for example, in that Pennsylvania health study, they found that uh, there was an article in a newspaper during the period of the study when some hospital had some event that happened that was bad where it wasn't supposed to happen. It was made the news that somebody – they did basically did something wrong. Left something behind right. in surgery. One article in one paper about one event like that had more effect than all the rest of this – those statistics combined in that study because it was in the newspaper where everybody could see it. People are very responsive. And to- you're <laughs> suggesting that, that people in that case didn't want to be seen as going to the bad hospital? Well, they don't want – why should – Because they were afraid my, loving, other- my wife, who I'm trying to show she loves for you, she just read this article about this bad hospital. I, sh- I should take her somewhere else to show that I care. Uh-huh. Interesting. I don't like the argument, Robin, but it's really <laughs> interesting. Uh, you want to say anything more about it before I give it an alternative explanation? I'll just say you can also explain some of the aspects of uh, the social, the status and health correlation and why we want to regulate health a lot, especially for low-status people. So these are some other puzzles in health policy that I think this general approach can help explain. But I won't force you to listen to those explanations well, I want, now. I want to I come back to that for in a sec. I, I want to give you a chance to talk about your blog, which I think is related to this. Uh, you have a blog called Overcoming Bias, right. and I assume that's part of – one of the themes of that blog is looking at the ways that we are hardwired or um, uh, we struggle to make rational decisions. This would be one of them, correct? Right. I, I actually was just surprised there wasn't anything else devoted to this, but we have this long literature about finding out biases in our reasoning, and people seem surprisingly uninterested in actually seriously overcoming those biases. You'd think you'd, I, when I find out about these biases, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm terrified of saying, well, my brain can't be trusted. It's going to tell me all sorts of lies. How do I make this brain <laughs> trustworthy so I can believe the things it's telling me? Otherwise, I don't know what to believe. So I want to figure out <laughs> how to know what to believe. And use some other piece of your brain. <laughs> right. The Fun, overcoming well, bias one, piece. Or other people. So they, you know, how can we together overcome our biases? Oh, how can we together form social institutions or networks such that we can be more reliable? And, but am I right that this kind of bias, this idea that, that I would be biased towards inefficient but expensive health care would be something I'd want to overcome, right? So not only you would want to overcome that at some cost probably. We can talk about the cost of overcoming bias. But if, if you care enough about believing what's true, then you want to overcome these biases. And you want to understand how is it that these biases have, have li- existed for so long. What, what 
biases are there in the medical literature? What biases are there in our, in our psyche of, of education or are just in the way we think that have allowed these things to persist? Well, let me pick one that I think is related to this, at least one one of these strange results in healthcare. And I want you to try to make the case that, that your argument maybe is better than mine. One of the things but that I think... you want me to listen first? What? You want me to listen to the Yeah, I guess. I may as well give it a shot. Sure, okay. Um, it's polite. Uh, so yeah, sometimes <laughs> you can just jump right in and <laughs> disagree without hearing the argument, uh, either yeah. because you know it or because it doesn't really matter, exactly. does it? But, but let's take a shot at it. One of the views that I think most people have that's generally correct and that I think is a handicap in other situations is the view that uh, you get what you pay for. And in the get what you pay for argument, uh, more expensive stuff is better than cheaper stuff. And in many cases, that's true. And sometimes the how much better it is doesn't necessarily seem as consistent with the uh, price differences as you might expect. But usually it's true that you know, for example, um, a Lexus is a, quote, better car than a Hyundai. Now, you could argue, well, they're really the same. They both get you from here to there. But right. we could argue that on many dimensions, the Lexus is more comfortable. It's got more be- features, more amenities, et cetera. And then you could debate, well, but it, whether it's worth it or not. But right. we'd all agree that the Lexus, in some sense, is a better car. Uh, similarly, to take a, another example, I think my students often f- – Undergraduate students find find troubling certain luxury goods, uh, so-called luxury goods like cars, uh, fountain pen. They're very expensive fountain pens. They dinner at a fancy restaurant. Uh, now, again, you might say, well, but they're not worth it. But most people would agree that that, that a two hundred dollar fountain pen writes better than a twenty dollar fountain pen. You could debate whether it's worth the extra one hundred and eighty bucks, but th- it's better. And yet. That general view, which is a good starting place for making rational shopping decisions, which is if I pay a premium, I get something in return. Uh, and, and, and similarly, mm, if it's inexpensive, it's, maybe it's not a bargain. Maybe it's lousy. Right. Uh, that runs into problems in areas like healthcare, uh, where I'm going to take it as true. That, let's take the RAND study as, as true. Let's take it as true – that the people who consume more health care didn't get better health. They just got the same amount. That that extra amount, you don't get what you pay for in health care. Now, one view is that is that they were just consuming this weird thing that wasn't effective because they were hardwired. The alternative view is that health care is sometimes structured in ways that is not uh, always – uh, consist going to we shouldn't expect it to be consistent with the with the idea that you get what you pay for, because the incentives are not always there to ensure that you get what you pay for. So in the marketplace, when we say you get what you pay for, we generally base it on the idea that there's competition and that bad sellers get driven out and the expensive ones, if things if they're not worth it, people won't buy them after a while. It might take a while to figure it out, but eventually they won't buy it. But in other areas where people are exp- explicitly spending other people's money rather than their own, we really shouldn't expect that you get what you pay for. So, for example, I'm going to take us a little far afield here. We'll get back to medicine in a sec. For example, in the area of education, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of studies. Uh, One of the studies of those studies has been done by uh, Rick Hanischek, who we interviewed uh, a while back for a podcast. And what Rick has found is that Schools that spend more on health 
uh, excuse me, schools that spend more on education than schools that spend less don't get better education. Uh, schools that spend more per student don't get better educated students. Uh, the standard answer to that is one answer is, well, we just didn't measure it right. When it comes up over and over again in places where people are right. desperate to find an effect, that's what gets you published. You don't get published when you find nothing. And so despite that incentive, people can't find anything. It tells you one of two things. Either the money's being spent on things that are not related to schooling, to, to true education, like a really nice gym or a really nice facility of building and grounds, et cetera, or it's wasted. It's just thrown away. And the reason that's true in that market as opposed to other markets is because in education, people aren't spending their own money. They're spending other people's money. Now, in healthcare. I'll get you. Hang on. You get you two cents in a sec. In healthcare, or two dollars. In healthcare, in America, a lot of people are spending other people's money. Now, in the RAND thing, they, I guess they were spending their own. But we've gotten into a world now where I'm not surprised that often healthcare doesn't have much bang for the buck because if it's almost free to me, I'm just going to have it anyway. Uh, is there any reason to think that that's not a major problem in America today? So I, the question is the level of the explanation. So there are proximate explanations for things and distant explanations for things. So you can have different explanations at different stages in that hierarchy. So one of the things that's going on certainly is that people don't adopt institutions that give people strong incentives and a lot of monitoring. And so there is less correlation between quality and expenditure because of that. I certainly uh, I buy that. But the question is, why do people tolerate those sorts of institutions and make those choices in this context versus other ones? So uh, people are eager to buy bundles of health care through their employers and to get it separately. Uh, people like – They're eager to have like a – they're eager to have a low copay. And, right. But, but I'm going to give Brian Kaplan's argument, if Brian were here, our colleague, which is, well, people just aren't – they don't realize it. They don't realize that that low copay encourages – they don't know economics. They don't, they're not like us. They don't realize that the low copay encourages overuse, that they're really paying for it in the premium that's coming out of their salary. You're making a comparison here between health and education, both of which I think are prototypically weird, and other areas of life. You look at other areas of life, people are, are much more willing to adopt institutions that are more skeptical and that put more incentives later on. So, uh, for example, usually we don't uh, get an all-you-can-eat food plan, you, yeah. you, know, you don't sign up for an all-you-can-buy groceries at the grocery store plan. You, you can imagine doing that. You sign up with the plan at the grocery store, you have your card, you walk in, and every time you walk out with as many groceries as you want, as long as you don't give it to anybody else, and they'll do a little monitoring of that. But you know, people don't want that plan. Because they understand. They you would could, understand. You're right. You very could, quickly, you do that, that at the gas station. You could have a card at the gas station. You can always come in and fill up your tank if you want and walk away with as much gas as you want and pay at the beginning of the year for that. People don't choose that. because the, You're saying because the card would be so expensive, people would realize, hey, this is well, stupid. Well, they understand. Yeah. that it would create these bad incentives, and they don't want that in that case. They're not afraid to think about spending more money on gasoline when their gasoline runs down in the same way that they don't want to think about making choices about medicine when they're sick or their friend is sick, their loved one is sick. Uh, so health and, health and education, medicine and education are distinct from other areas of life, and one of the symptoms of that difference is the fact that people tolerate crappy institutions that produce crappy incentives. And it's not just that they don't understand the relevant economics because they seem to understand it better in other areas of life. That's, that's an interesting point. So you're saying that, that if, if I were right and that this was, um, say, either 
the result of bad institutions or ba- or public choice where, yeah. say, doctors were able to manipulate the political process to ha- create a system that enriches them at our expense, people would get would be bitter and angry about it in a d- very different direction than they're bitter and angry about the current state of healthcare. So l- let me make your argument. Uh, let me make a different version of your argument that I that I that is appealing to me. We spend uh, how much do we spend on healthcare? Sixteen percent. Uh, which, which is roughly how much? One-sixth. No, no, what? Two trillion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Two, two trillion. Okay. So two trillion is a lot of money. Even uh, – even, Per uh, year. Yeah, per year. So in the United States we're talking. And what percentage of that two trillion is pharmaceutical um, purchases? Do you know? One more than 15%. 15% or less. I think it's even less than that. Yeah, 10, yeah. I think it's a tiny that. number, right? So if, for example, let, let's say it's 10%. So, uh, so 10% of, of $2 trillion is $200 billion. Two, 200 billion. So suppose we made all pharmaceutical uh, uh, payments zero a, as a government program, and we, we, we didn't put price controls, but we compensated all pharmaceutical companies right. uh, as a pure subsidy. So we didn't want to worry about the disincentive effects of, of this for future innovation. So that would lower our health care bill from $2 trillion to $1.8 trillion. <laughs> And people would say, well, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. Uh, and yet it is the one area. It's one year's increase in expending. <laughs> right, right. It's a, right, that's what, right. That's what we'd say. We, we delay it for a year. So you'd think people would say, well, yeah, that's the wrong place. To look and and if there were incentive effects, if we if we made them free and we forced the pharmaceutical companies to give them away, which some people are in favor right. of, uh, you you know the health the future health effects could be quite large. And yet there are people who want this because it's the only area left where you really have some out of pocket choice. We've got more areas to go, actually, I'm afraid. So All right. not just pharmaceuticals. There's the whole mental health. You know, there's mental right. health parity. Yeah, it's common. Yeah. Dental parity, eyeglass parity. Get the whole concept of medicine is pretty expandable if you think about it too. So it's got yeah. a long way to go. Yeah, television parity. It's all part of health. Yeah, we all need a big screen, giant television for health reasons. For the counselor session. For what? For the our, our two way counselor session. On <laughs> TV screen. Uh, right. So, I mean, it's also important to realize uh, medicine and education have been weird for longer than government has been big. Okay. And they're weirder all across the world under very different regimes. Very different regulatory regimes. So uh, certainly whatever bad things we have about our regulatory regimes probably exasperate whatever problems there are. But you should be cautious about blaming them fundamentally for the problems. I think that's more basic than that. So again, my overall theme here is the world is weird in ways that we don't appreciate and we don't like to acknowledge. And the first step is to acknowledge it's weird, step back, try to collect and list how it's weird. And only then... (laughs) Try to come up with some coherent explanations for a bunch of things at once. Okay, so uh, suppose you're right. Suppose it's true that we have this emotional baggage about healthcare, and I think the argument on education would have to be it's related to our children, and we have some bad yeah. evolutionary uh, obsessions then with our children that causes us to make similar errors. Would be would be the claim, and yet you and I, Robin who clearly appear to be uh, flesh and blood, biological yeah. creatures, rather than the, um, uh, the um, automatons that, that we could be. We are real human beings bearing the, with the same uh, genetic heritage of our friends and neighbors. We seem to have 
overcome some of this, or at least we are aware of it. We're aware of it. Uh, What might we encourage our neighbors to do uh, to make the world a better place? I mean, one view says, this is great. This is great. What we need to do is we need to socialize medicine because that way people will be really happy. They'll have horrible health care, but they won't care because all they really care about is spend, spend, spend. That's one view. Now, the problem with that view, of course, is that Canadians, for example, which have a more socialized system than we do, do seem to be somewhat alarmed about its relative efficacy compared to our system, just like some Americans are alarmed about the relatively lower price of drugs in Canada going the other direction. But certainly all Canadians, while they're proud of their system, they, they talk about it a lot. They're starting to wonder. I mean, the Supreme Court of Canada, I don't know what it's called, but I know there's recently a court ruling about a year ago that said, you know, this system that deprives people of health care isn't, even though it's out of their hands, which would seem to be a plus, yeah. it's not working very well and people aren't happy about it. Yeah, I, I have to step back and be more uncertain. I have to say, you know, if I don't know what's going on in health care or in medical care, and I'm confused, I have a few theories, but I'm not that confident about this. This isn't a strong basis for making detailed policy recommendations. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm sort of, I think all, all is equal. I might rather tax this thing than subsidize it, but I'm not very confident. So I think I'll just recommend taking your damn hands off it <laughs> and stepping back and realizing you don't understand and saying, if I don't understand, I shouldn't be trying to make detailed recommendations about this. So, of course, that means other people shouldn't necessarily be doing that either. So, well, but would you be comfortable so, and confident that that, I mean, personally, I have, as you know, I have a strong. Uh, preference toward decentralized decision-making and, and a bottom-up set of decision-making and a world where the information that's dispersed among all of us patients is uh, used by us spending our own money where our incentives are therefore more better aligned than by right. healthcare bureaucrats who decide what treatment is relevant for this problem at, and how much should be paid for it. And it's an unbelievable amount of engineer, social engineering that people are totally unaware of that goes on in healthcare that, that, that destroys the incentives for performance. And most of that engineering is based on a lot of confidence that people think they know a lot of what's going on. They think they understand in great detail what things are for and what they do, and they're basing the recommendations on those assumptions. But you're making a much stronger argument than just we should be agnostic about the efficacy of healthcare, Right. So if, if my signaling theory is correct, then overall uh, it's a waste, and you know often it's better to tax a signal than to subsidize it. But then, of course, when we there's a national competition, so if we, if we don't have as much medicine, we look worse compared to other nations. And so if you can't tax the signal at the global level, maybe you, you know, it's hard to overcome a signaling problem. But uh, I'd actually make a different recommendation, which is to say once you realize how little we know and how much our social institutions lie to us about these various things, I'm eager to create... Institu- social institutions that don't lie as well. So that's my interest in prediction markets. Okay, well, let's, let's turn to that. Before we do, I just want to make it clear that there's a, a much more transparent explanation for the RAND results that we didn't talk about. I want to make, get that on the table for okay. our listeners, which is because I think a lot of people will say, wait a minute. You're telling me I shouldn't ever go to the doctor? It's a waste of money? It's a waste of my time? If, I really, if I've overcome yeah. this bias... So uh, the, the RAND experiment only directly says, ask yourself whether you would be willing to pay for this out of your own pocket. If the answer is no, then don't bother to go because it wasn't going to help you anyway. Right. It doesn't tell you about the stuff you were going to be willing to pay for out of your pocket because the RAND experiment wasn't directly on that. It was comparing the, the extra, extra medicine. It was looking at the, directly at the health effect of the extra medicine. So the jargon in this in economics is the marginal Benefit. Right, well, it's a 40% margin. It's not a yeah. half a percent margin. <laughs> it's We're not a small a big amount. Chunk, but. but the idea would be that 
we, we could it's certainly the rand let me say it differently the rand experiment is certainly consistent with with a world where there are many things in medicine that are valuable right but the ones that you would buy if it were really cheap those are probably not good uses of your time either because this is the part I want to make sure we we get out on the table either because they're ineffective or because the bad things that can happen cancel out the good things right so yes if you have um, a certain healthcare issue, surgery, if it's successful, will help you. But there's a risk that it won't help you because – not because the surgery is a, a sham, which would be one interpretation of the sure. results, but because unfortunately sometimes bad things happen. So let's go through all the things that can go wrong. You can, you <laughs> sure. can pick up an infection in a hospital that wasn't what you came in with because it's something they brought in, right? They can give you the wrong medicine because they, somebody read the chart wrong or they gave the wrong instructions wrong. Uh, they can accidentally cut an artery. Uh, the medicine that the doctor gives you can be based on uh, his lack of reading of the literature. Or it could be there was a random, randomized trial somewhere done, and you aren't like the patients that were in the randomized trial. And the doctor, you often, for these randomized trials, they pick the very best patients. The patients think they're most likely to benefit from something, and they have good doctors very carefully you know, trying these things. But then when it goes out in the rest of the world, they can pretty much or it do all sorts of stuff. Or it interacts with something they didn't know you were taking or doing that has a negative side effect that's very unhealthy. Right. So there's lots of accidents there's just lots of accidents and random things that go wrong, but there's also just a lot of things doctors regularly do that when they do a clinical trial many years later, they find it wasn't having any bene- net benefit. I think one-third of medical studies uh, were found to be inaccurate. Uh, whether that study is one yeah. of the third, that's the only problem with the, with this result. Uh, but, yeah, sometimes... So these, these are all things that most doctors will admit, that there's lots of things that can go wrong and there's lots of negatives. Okay, well, let's turn to, quote, a better way of um, perhaps making policy decisions in general and in particular in the medical field, which is an area that you've uh, really done some extraordinary pioneering work, which is with prediction markets, a topic we talked about with uh, Cass Sunstein recently. Uh, Tell us about the idea generally and then in particular how it would apply to healthcare. So the idea generally is uh, if you were a reporter calling me up on the phone uh, asking me about my opinions about how we should reform healthcare – I, first of all, don't have much of an incentive to tell you I don't know anything, nor do I have an incentive to give you my best honest estimate. I rather might, uh, you know, flatter you or tell the readers what they want to hear, things like that. Most of our social institutions, even peer-reviewed journals and things like that, have a lot of those kind of flaws. A betting market is a, is a market, is a social institution where different people contribute their opinions and out comes a consensus estimate. And the betting market has two wonderful features. One, it gives people who don't know a strong incentive to shut up, which other institutions don't do. Yep. And secondly, it gives people an incentive to pause and ask, what do I really think here? Because if I'm wrong, I'm going to lose money. And so if you just called people on the phone as a reporter and asked them about how we should reform health care, they will act differently than if you had them bet on how we should reform healthcare. And so explain how that would work when you say there's a, a betting market. Give me an example of, what, of how it would be structured and what the incentives would be. Well, so for example, at the moment, there's betting markets on who will be the next presidential um, president of the United States. There are also betting markets on who will be the next ca- uh, candidate of the Democratic Party nominee and that Republican Party nominee. And there are even betting markets that are an indication of if you nominated this guy from the party, what's his chance of being president? 
<laughs> so in that sense, these betting markets give you conditional estimates, which is, can be thought of as con- a decision advice. They say Clinton versus Obama, uh, who's, if you nominated them, who would have the better chance of winning? So betting markets can give you not only overall estimates, who's likely to win, but also conditional estimates. What's the chance of this happening if you do that? We can apply those conditional estimates to health policy. We can say, if the, if a Democrat wins the next election and they ha- one of their big things they're going to do is make some big health care reform, we could have a betting market that says, well, if their health care reform passes, then what is the uh, life expectancy in the United States 10 years later? And if it doesn't pass, what's life expectancy in the United States 10 years later? And is there any difference between the two? So I, being someone who's looked at this literature about correlations, say I'm pretty, be pretty confident I'm going to see no difference. It's very unlikely they can come up with much of a health policy that's going to make much of a difference at all in lifespans. And so I will bet to pull those two prices together. Other people who believe otherwise would bet to push the prices apart. And the question is, which one of us is actually being the most honest and careful here? Well, what I find fascinating about the example is that although I'm a skeptic on the RAND experiment and think that there is some value of marginal health care when it's 40 percent more, when you, ask, when, you, when you phrase it as a betting experiment and you ask me well, how different is, is life expectancy going to be after a 10-year run of this n- radical new policy, I'd say, ah, oh, it's not going to change much. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> and that's the beauty of a betting market. It puts you in a yeah. different frame of mind it where really does, yeah. you're actually worried about losing – and the only problem with that, I think, in application is uh, how you measure it, right? Right. I, I'm not sure how much I'd – it'd be a hard thing to bet. Well, it's easy to measure. lifespans. That's easy life to measure. Life is easy. No, the problem is before I put that money down, I'd be worried about inter- unexpected intervening events that would change the – well, that's your problem as a better. doesn't mean every betting market has those sorts of complexities. Almost every real event that people bet on has enormous numbers of complications yeah. that can come and interfere. Yeah, well, we're taping the this. have to figure that out. We're taping this on what's today, May 18th? Or is, is that today? Yeah, yeah May 18th. Uh, tonight, the Phoenix Suns will be playing <laughs> uh, the San Antonio Spurs in the sixth game of the Western Conference semifinals in the National Basketball Association. And those people who bet on the Sons probably didn't anticipate that two of their better players would be out for the fifth game. And that's – you don't get your money back. You're right. right. You're, you're just kind of like, uh, excuse me, sir. I didn't realize <laughs> there was going to be a brawl or a near right. brawl. And so I'd like my money back. It's kind of like the scene in – But so the remarkable thing is if you asked people to write a white paper to predict this analysis, they would have all sorts of qualifiers and hem and haw. And it would be hard to actually get them to make a forecast out of a white paper, if you put up a betting market, people actually put their money down and you get a number. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You get cool. a real solid number. So why don't we have that now? Well, one – We do have it. Hang we on. have we some do. betting markets. But we don't have betting markets on these policy topics. What, and, these but we could. Policies. We could if it were legal. That is, if it were legal, I and friends could make them, but it's not legal, so it's much harder to create them. Why isn't it legal? It's legal for the, um, for the presidential markets. Why couldn't you actually, do it Actually, it's for, not. Well, I, the Iowa betting market's not well, legal. Well, they have a special – Exemption? A legal exemption that nobody else can – it's very hard for other people to get. So actually but Las not, Vegas has that legal exemption. Actually, Las Vegas can only bet on sports. You can't bet on the presidential election in Las Vegas. Really? Really. Wow. They, they will issue See what forecasts. You learn. See what you learned here at Econ Talk? It's a fantastic <laughs> thing, isn't it? Amazing. You can – they cannot – no. how is that legislated? The, well, they have an exemption for one thing only. They only allow sports betting. So, And why isn't presidential politics called sports? I mean, what's the – it's clearly a they, – uh, they had to go for it. They've, they've, they've consciously wanted to avoid a scandal, which would shut them down. So the yeah. betting, the gambling industry have consciously tried to limit their exposure to uh, 
scandalous events. I guess, and I guess you don't want to have like an assassination right. uh, that, would, that right. would be due to a betting uh, uh, a betting ring that would bet think, on the, the other candidate. I think candidate. the more interesting question here, though, is even if it were legal, do people want to hear the answer? That is, when people are in there showing that they care frame of mind about advocating uh, new reforms in health policy, do they really want to look at a hard-nosed, you know, no, no tears yeah. estimate well, that would of take some of the, the actual consequences? Take some of the romance out of politics, which I would think that would be one of the things I would say is at the near the top of my <laughs> list for for things that would make the world a better place. Right. Uh, uh, so that that would be good for in my mind, but I guess you're right. A lot of people would not like that world. They prefer the more romantic world. Or we might say, how can we distract people's ro- political romance to something where it doesn't matter so much? So let's have a queen and let's dress her up and bring her out for big events and they can all get romantic about that. And yeah. then we can have the you know solid, nasty business of dealing with real life and death done somewhere else. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Um, you got entangled uh, in a political uh, brouhaha with your advocacy – of uh, these prediction markets in now, terrorism. Yeah, entangles a bit it too It lasted strong. longer than it did. I yeah. think it was more of a SWAT. Yeah. <laughs> well, out of the blue, whap, and there what, you what are. Hap- <laughs> what happened there? You wrote – you and some co-authors. So I and some uh, colleagues were – had a DARPA-funded research project. DARPA is the big sky uh, research arm in the Defense Department. And we had a research project to look at betting markets to advise defense policy. And so we set up. We were in the process of setting up some markets to advise uh, Middle East policy. That is, these markets were going to say uh, in each of eight countries in the Middle East uh, what the political activity level is, what the economic growth activity, how stable it is, how, whether there's military activity. And you would and, bet on these things. And we were going to set it up so people could bet on these things, and their, especially their combinations, to tell us about what's likely to happen in the Middle East, and especially how that would depend on what we do. And uh, we were a few months away from starting with a pilot version of that, and uh, some senators found the web page that was being set up, and they found some sample corner of the web page that seemed to have something to do with terrorism, and so they declared that we were having a market to bet on terrorism. And which would allow people to profit. Profit. Part, part, the, the, what was waved about was the idea right. that – From individual terrorist attacks. People could summer. make money off of terrorism. Right. Now, first of all, the market was going to – you know, $10 bets were going to be the limit pretty much, so – it's, not, it's hard to uh, make a lot off of that. Then, secondly, it wasn't going to be betting on individual terrorist attacks. At the, cl- at the, at the closest, it was going to be sort of uh, looking at aggregate terrorist activity levels or something like that. Um, but once this accusation was made on a Monday morning, um, by Tuesday morning, the Secretary of Defense declared the project over. Between Monday and Tuesday, nobody <laughs> talked to us. The DARPA PR person was out of town. And it was just it also a, got, a very easy political calculation that uh, – And John Poindexter got John Poindexter fired shortly the, thereafter, released or he, something? He resigned. He declared his resignation the next day after that. John Poindexter was uh, famous for being part of the Iran-Contra scandal. He went to jail. Uh, and then after he came out of jail, he was pointed to some point in the DARPA hierarchy. And so he happened to be above our project in the hierarchy. I never met him. Uh, the project was there before he came on. The project was actually there uh, before – Bush took office. It was actually uh, in the Clinton administration started, <laughs> but it was. But people accused sort of the Bush administration of being a little too mad about markets to allow how, such a thing. How did that happen in one day? Usually, a political scandal, a little flare up mm-hmm. like that, takes a while to build. 
but I, I guess people had such an emotional reaction. Is right. that what happened? Do you have any- well, it's not just an emotional reaction. Um, this Berkeley psychologist, Philip Tetlock, has a nice um, recent book on called uh, Expert Political Judgment. And he also has some research about uh, sacred trade-offs and a nice observation that uh, – you're not supposed to make sacred trade-offs and you're not even supposed to think about them. So, for example, if you describe to somebody that there's a hospital administrator who's thinking about cutting costs, perhaps at the risk of people's lives in the hospital, not only do they think this hospital administrator is an evil person no matter what the financial situation in the hospital, they think he's evil if, even if he thinks about it for a week and then does the right thing. <laughs> uh-huh. Thinking about it for a week is wrong. It's wrong, okay. So, in this context, thinking about it, was, it would be wrong. It's the sort of thing that everybody should know that everybody should know that you just don't do. End of story. So... Asking for a week to think about it would look pretty bad. Why bother? Just you just cut it. You know, if we had a billion dollar project, maybe there'd be a chance that you know the senator from our state would like back us or something. It was a million dollar project, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so that killed the Defense Department's um, interest, at least temporarily, in using prediction markets to forecast um, stability in the Middle East. Betting markets. To forecast that in a um, uh, creative way. Are there other areas where you think there's a chance that these markets will rise again? Well, currently, they are being applied within smaller organizations, mostly private organizations, some nonprofits like corporations like yeah. Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Google yeah. uh, Pfizer, uh, Eli Lilly, places like that, which have some big important decisions to inform. Um, and so we're finding out uh, just how interested managers are in getting more accurate forecasts about things. And interestingly, they are less interested than you might think in more accurate forecasts. Because for the reasons we're talking about? Well, it's, it's an, another thing to put on the list of the ways the world is strange. But um, most, I would su- suggest most, a lot of management is more about theater uh, and a lot of political, a lot of corporate decisions are, in a sense, political decisions, and aren't, in fact, that much influenced by last-minute fluctuations in various pieces of information that come in. So, uh, many corporations realize that they don't actually use their forecast that much, and uh, so they don't aren't that interested in getting more accurate forecasts. And often, they like the fact that their forecasts are wrong in certain ways. So, uh, there's a nice paper about how managers of software managers like to have software managers who, are, who have inaccurate forecasts of how long it will take them to do a project. That is, they like managers who are gung-ho, who promise more than they can deliver, because not only does this indicate expertise, it also means that when they're behind schedule, they'll work harder to get more done. Yeah, the, the, it's an interesting question. I, the competition among firms, of course, is going to uh, push firms toward more accuracy, even though... Right. Even though Psychologically, a manager might like inaccuracy or use forecasts as a uh, cover for for reputational reasons, political reasons. Right. Competition is going to going to tend to produce firms that that use them well. Uh, but in but this take, case, but it can take a while. It can take a while. But this case of of over optimism or or pessimism, whatever it was, push, pushing people to to work harder, reminds me a little bit of a different bias, that which is. Entrepreneurs' overconfidence about how long it will take them to produce something right. or raise the money they need, and and they'll well, often so this say, is that same bias. It's, yeah. it's promising, you know, thinking you can do it faster than you can. And I think Adam Smith has a nice quote about it, which we'll try to find and put up uh, put up on the website. Well, my guest today has been Robin Hansen, my colleague here at George Mason University. He blogs at 
overcomingbias.com. And he's the author of a whole bunch of interesting research papers and uh, really weird ideas about really weird things. It's uh, And all true. And they're all true. Well, no, I think <laughs> maybe not all. Robin has a page we'll, we'll post called uh, I think it's called Fourteen Wild Ideas, and I think um, it says one third of which are a third of which are true, which is shocking when you see the list. Uh, Robin, I'm not thanks saying for, which third? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the challenge. Robin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.